Please turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. I'll be reading selected passages from both. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from the uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's armies f- an army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After her time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had, brought, he had bought. He raised it, and he, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. This is the word of the Lord. David was a, a shepherd He was a psalmist, he was a warrior, he was God's chosen king. But in this passage, his life just completely implodes, completely blows up. If you're new or visiting today, um, we've been walking through a series, um, uh, passages in the Old Testament, where uh, we see how God works through uh, brokenness uh, to bring about salvation. And you you gotta look at this, if David, if a life like David's can blow up, Anyone's life can blow up. But, I mean, we see how terrible. This is the king. 
This is God's chosen king of Israel. And yet, if he could fall, anyone could fall, and yet if his life can be restored, then anyone's life can be restored. There are three things we're going to look at today. The power of sin, the power of friends, the power of grace. Sin, friends, and grace. First, we're going to look at the power of sin. <clears throat> David's a chosen king of Israel. You see, the neighboring kings, they hoarded wealth. They were immodest. They ruled selfishly. They were self-preserving people. They were cruel. But David, he was chosen to be a modest king a just king, a selfless king, a man after God's own heart. But in verse 1, the text says that in the spring, at a time when kings were off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in his palace. What's going on? He's tired. Years and years of this, he's getting tired. And, as he, and uh, all the years of the work in the kingdom, he's growing entitled and selfish and self-preserving. There's a spiritual decay that's, that's birthed in him, and it's taking place in his life. And he's starting to act like all the other kings around him, the neighboring kings around him, and so he's lonely. And in verses 2 and 3, David, he encounters Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of Uriah. Who is Uriah? You see, when David, when he was fighting when he was fighting, when he was a fugitive, fighting in a civil war for the kingdom. He was in the wilderness. He was being hunted down by the then king, King Saul. He was living in caves. He had a group of men, a group of friends that voluntarily risked their lives and fought with him and for him by faith. They protected David. They were called as mighty men. They risked their lives for David. And so when David became king, these men served in the palace. These men served uh, as chiefs in his military, and one of them was Uriah the Hittite. He shared an incredible, in intense uh, experience with David in the trenches together, and he fought with him and for David. David, in a sense, owed his life to Uriah. You want to know how honorable Uriah was? If you read this passage, if you paid attention, what's going on? David sends a death sentence in a letter with Uriah to kill him, and he doesn't know. He doesn't read. He has that kind of integrity. But in, verse, and in verses 4 to 5, I mean, David, this is the king of Israel. He had everything, and yet he coveted Uriah's wife, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant. And so in verses 6 to 13, what do you see? More and more, David becomes self-preserving. He's scheming. Why? He's trying to come out clean. He knows what he did. He tries to come out clean. He tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, right, so that the timing, if he does it just early enough and she bears a child, it will look like Uriah's child. He's trying to prevent scandal, but Uriah wouldn't. Uriah has honor towards God. Uriah, Uriah has, has honor towards his men, honor towards David. They're in a war. He lives the life that David should live. So how does David respond? Verses 14 to 21, he has Uriah killed. He has him killed, one of his best friends, to cover over his own sin so he can marry Bathsheba. So Uriah dies the death that David should have died. You see, adultery was a capital sin in those days, in the ancient times. So in this one narrative, more than half of the Ten Commandments were violated. David covets, David steals, David lies and manipulates, he commits adultery, he, he commits treachery and murder. Uriah is dead. And Joab, Joab is the general. 
He knows what's going on. He, in a sense, knows. He's read the letter. He knows what he's being called to do. He's putting the pieces together. Verses 18 to 25, in the battle, some of David's men die. How do you explain, how do you justify losing this battle or losing some of your men in the front lines? How do you justify this to the king? How do you justify this to, to David? Well, in the message, Uriah, the Hittite, was one of them. And David realizes what happened. And his response, it's a cold response in a sense. It's cold comfort. It almost justifies what's happened. He says, well, you know, it's war. People die. Men die. Don't be too upset. What's happening? David is starting to lose the public trust that helped to build the foundations of his kingdom. This is David, the writer of Psalms in the Bible, one of the greatest figures in the Bible, mentioned throughout the Old Testament and the New Maybe one of the greatest figures in all of ancient history. How did this happen? It's the power of sin. What does that teach us? A few things. One, I mean, we look at the Bible. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to the church, you look at the Bible and you see all these great figures in the Old Testament that are mentioned, that are mentioned throughout your life, whether or not you entered into a church before. And you think of these people as heroes, right? They're supposed to live good lives, right? That's what the Bible is about, right? The Bible is not about a book of heroes that act as, as great examples of faithfulness and obedience because look at David. This is a man after God's heart and yet David is a terrible example of faithfulness and obedience. The Bible is rather about weak, faithless, sinful, broken people in their own sin who without God working in their lives daily, moment by moment, we are absolutely powerless to sin. The Bible is about people who disobey God, run from God, don't acknowledge God, are not thankful for God, hide from God, maybe even curse God, certainly don't trust God, and yet are saved by the sheer grace of God. Secondly, what we learn is that there's absolutely no limit to our heart's capacity to deceive ourselves to lie and manipulate, to steal, to conspire and kill, and then justify it. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, way back, I mean, we covered this passage. If you've been here, um, you go about a month, in it, a month back and you'll see this. Saul disobeys God and then he justifies it. Oh, we're going to, we're doing this to worship God. But this is David. God chose David. And now him? I mean, what insidious thing has happened to David? Well, sin is powerful because it's insidious. It's got no smell, no color. It's not visible all the time. It has a particularly blinding effect on our souls. I mean, it's easy for us to read this text and say, this is crazy. I mean, I would never do that. But the moment you say that, you're taking an enormous step towards our soul's blind capacity to actually commit that. The worst thing you could do is believe, oh, I could never do that. I would never do that. I'm incapable of doing something like that. That's what makes you capable. Why? Because the things that are killing you right now, the things that are ruining your, ruining your soul right now are the things that you can't see, the things that you are blind to. That's why. Sin always begins as a seed. You know what a seed is? Biology majors? I mean, in a room like this, we got a lot of biology majors right? Biology majors, what is a seed? It's small, but it's got great power. 
dynamic. Everything that is needed for life is contained in that one seed. Everything that a tree needs to root, to grow, and then burst into thousands of other seeds is contained in that one seed. So if there is just that root of self-pity, a root of anger or bitterness, a root of resentment, a root of envy or pride or self-centeredness or loneliness, when those seeds start to really go deep and they root themselves in your heart, they can destroy the world. And yet we neglect it. We dismiss it. We do everything we can. It's almost like we're trying to do everything we can to dissuade people from thinking that we're capable of that. We, we tolerate this in our hearts. Why? Because deep inside, we don't really believe that we are that sinful. We don't really believe that any of the things that we're being told by our parents or by our friends or by our spouses, certainly by our children, we don't believe we're really that bad. Even those people who think, well, you see, well, I'm a Christian. So my worth is founded on Jesus' love for me. Yet we say that, we preach that in this church, and yet our self-image, moment by moment, whether you're at work or at school with your friends, anywhere, moment by moment, it's based on something else. The moment you do that, then what you've done is instead of addressing your sin, you're justifying your sin. You're starting to enable your sin. See, it's easy to look at somebody else and say, well, they definitely have a problem. I mean, that person has a problem. It's not as bad as mine, or not me. I, I'm not capable of that. It's easy to say, you know, we use phrases like, well, it's normal to feel the way I feel, right? It's normal to want what I want, right? I'm entitled to this, right? Or it's not my fault. We always say that. I mean, we blame everything and everyone. My favorite one is, I mean, change. I get, I get it. I'm a mess. I'm broken. But change is a process. I'm just going to work it out. And then we totally neglect. After that breath, we just totally neglect. We dismiss the heart's capacity to sin. And then still, like Saul and David, we come here, we look nice, we worship God, we say, and then we confess, and we say, yes, I'm a sinner. And we confess, and we pray, and we give, and we hear God's word. And we share, I want to own my sin, I need to own my sin. But if you never really hate your sin, if you never really commit to fighting your sin, then you're not really owning your sin. And sin's blinding effect, its power is starting to own you. And then it begins to sprout. Thirdly, think about this. God says, David is a man after my own heart. And so he's a king. He's called to be modest. He's called to be just. He's called to be selfless, different than all the kings. He's set apart from all the other kings, his neighboring kings around him. He's, he is to reflect the kingliness of God himself. But now what do you see? David, his is, is manipulations are manipulating him. He's becoming twisted and he's desperate. And, and you just see him a murderous. What happens if you continue to let your sin go unaddressed? Well, as it roots, as it grows, it starts to dehumanize you. David is becoming the opposite of what he was called to be. He was called to be just, and now he's unjust. He was called to be selfless, and now he's selfish. He was called to protect and preserve others, and now he's preserving himself. He's not becoming more of a person. He's becoming less of a person, murderous and conspiring and twisted and desperate. And so, for 
The Bible says if the things that are most important to you apart from God easily root in you and they start to rule you and blind you, they're going to start to ruin you. And so the most important thing that you can do is to identify those seeds in your life. I mean, it's a lot easier to squash a seed than it is to uproot an oak tree. Oh, but it's so hard. Pastor, it's so hard. You know why it's hard? Because it's already taking hold. It's already taking root. You're already giving it up. You're already giving up. That's the power of sin. So you need to stop neglecting your anger. You need to stop neglecting your gossip. You need to stop overlooking and just passing off as normal your lusts and your pride. You need to stop tolerating your envy and your jealousy. You need to stop tolerating that loneliness and just kind of living with it and stewing in it. You need to stop tolerating your selfishness and self-reliance. Lastly, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In other words, God sees. God hears. God knows. You think you're getting away with something, even the slightest malcontent, the slightest discontent, whether it's at home or at work, at school, in your relationships, at church, you can get away with that. Whisper to people, to friends, God hears. God knows. And it brings displeasure. That's the power of sin. Now, the second point is the power of friends. What does God do? Did he strike David down? Did he destroy David? No. He sends Nathan. He sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet, but he's a friend. A prophet is called by God to act as a prosecuting attorney in a sense on behalf of God who is prosecuting. He is the plaintiff. When the, when the king who represents his nation, especially the king, when he acts unjustly or he's wicked or he starts to neglect or dismiss or distort God's word. And so Nathan is a prophet called by God to speak and call David out, and yet he doesn't just come at David. Instead, he says, well, you're a king. You're called to be a judge. You're called to be just. I have a case for you. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, there's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man has many flocks and herds, cattle and sheep, but the poor man has one little lamb. And he treated that one little possession like a member of his family, slept with that, like, like he was, that, that lamb was his daughter. The rich man takes his traveler in. It was the social etiquette of the day. You took in travelers, you demonstrated hospitality, but he didn't want to do that at his own expense. So what does he do? He takes that one little lamb that the poor man owned, and he kills that lamb and uses that lamb to feed his guest. Nathan says, you are king. You are a just king. What would you do? And David says two things. The first, one of the things he says is, well, this man must pay four times over. In a sense, that's kind of in keeping with the law. He's being just. But then he says something very interesting. That's not how he starts off. In verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Nothing in the law says that stealing somebody else's lamb deserves capital punishment. Why is David so over the top? It's because one of the 
best ways to cover over our own sinfulness is what? We sentence other people to death. That's what we do. I mean, this story that Nathan brought to David, it stirred David's conscience. I mean, our conscience, we think that our conscience is a, is a good thing, and largely may be. But our conscience is broken too, broken by our sinfulness. So it's constantly misfiring, and it's constantly confusing itself, and, but yet it can be stirred. I mean, we think that's weird. Not really. Think about it. When your spouse or your best friend confronts you about something, you say, you know, you're like this or you're like that. It's an accusation. How do you respond? Oh, you're so good to me. Thank you. Like David in chapter 12, verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. No one has done that in this room, not in the last week. Rarely, usually, I mean, usually, we get angry, we respond unfairly. Uh, we respond with an equal measure and probably a greater measure of unfairness. Why? On one hand, what we, what we said, uh, what that person said is insulting. It's condemning. So we feel condemned. But on the other hand, it's because your conscience is being stirred up. It's kind of lying low. And then all of a sudden, someone's stirring the pot. And so it's broken and misfiring. So what do we do? We're responding. We're just kind of lashing out and being defensive and and angry. And we come up with all sorts of convoluted ways of of twisting and turning around because anything that we can do to get away from that sense and experience of being exposed. Anything that we, we try to talk our ways out of it, we try to anger our ways out of it. But really what's being said is like a wake up call. I mean, look at David. David isn't angry at Nathan, and he's not angry. I mean, he's not angry because, because Nathan was wrong to accuse him. I mean, when Nathan told that story, he was really angry, but he wasn't angry because Nathan was wrong in a sense. He was angry, actually. Why? Because Nathan's talking about him, and he was right. What are the lessons from this? One, one of the biggest symptoms of an awakening conscience still broken by sin, still misfiring, and yet awakening is what? We become inordinately angry and judgmental towards others. It's a, I mean, what is gossip? Gossip, you're murdering the reputation. You're assassinating the reputation of another person. Why? Because it's a great way of kind of deflecting attention away from yourself. I tell you, the greatest, the most guilty people in a room are the ones who gossip the most. People who know their guilt, at least their conscience is being stirred up. David's guilt is grabbing him. It's why he flares up. Who is this man? Doesn't he know that this country is about justice? Does he know who I am? Does he know where he lives? Secondly, look at the life-changing power of friends. Look at the quality of their relationship, Nathan and David. Nathan says, you are that man. Saul had Samuel. David had Nathan. In each of these narratives, there was a friend. In each of their stories, their narratives, there was a friend who knew them, whom they couldn't run from. We need that. Do you have that? Do you have that in your life? You need it. I mean, look at the quality of their friendship. We tend to mistreat our Nathans, and then we justify it. Why? What do we tend to say? It's not what you said. It's how you said it. Right? That's what we use. It's one of our convoluted ways of, of kind of squirming our way out of, of our sinfulness. 
or at least being exposed to that. On one hand, look at Nathan. He's a great friend. He's careful. He knows his friend. He, he's, he's, he's got, he respected David's position, so he's navigating the situation very carefully. I mean, he had every right, every backing, every piece of evidence to prove that David was guilty of capital pun- and that he deserved capital punishment. And yet he was still so careful, still so gentle. Nathan's of the room. Can you be more disarming like that? I mean, it takes a lot of thought to be like that. It takes a lot of prayer and just really intentional thinking. You can't just barge in, guns blazing. You're not going to, that's not Nathan here. Can you be more disarming like that? On the other hand, look at David. The moment his friend tells him, this is about you, he owned it. There was no pushback. There was no deflection, no defensiveness. There's nothing like that. He says, I sinned. He doesn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba, even though he did. He didn't say, I sinned against Uriah, even though he did. He didn't say, I sinned against the country, even though he did. I sinned against the palace, even though he did. He said, I sinned against the Lord. He goes right to the heart. The reason why I did all these things and distanced myself from my best friends in life is why? Because I've distanced myself from God. David sees Nathan as somebody who's called by God. Your friend, godly friends in your life are people who've been called by God to tell you over and over and over, come back to him. David's in the room. Can you listen better? Can you submit more readily like that? I mean, we are terrible Nathans. We are terrible Davids, aren't we? You know why? Because we don't believe in the doctrine of sin. That we're that bad. That we're so helpless. We can't cure ourselves. We are that sinful. We always regard ourselves as better than we really are. When we look at ourselves, it's always in three dimensions. When we look at somebody else's sin, one dimension. They are a liar. They are cheaters. They are just evil, bad people. But when we look at ourselves, well, you got to understand the situation. You see, you got to understand what I was going through at the time. We love to see ourselves in three dimensions. We are terrible Nathans. We are terrible Davids. So we never accept the truth about ourselves like David. If, if David were off the rails, he would never have been able to accept the truth about himself, and Nathan would be a dead man. And we love to hammer people with the truth like, the, like Nathans if he was off the rails. Remember, Nathan was speaking to a king. It may have been his friend, but it was his king. You can't just accuse a king. In ancient times, you got killed for that, even if you were right. So Nathan was risking more than just his friendship with David. He was risking his life by confronting David. We need a friend like Nathan who sees you. Don't mistreat Nathans in your life. Everyone's got a Nathan in their life. You know why? Think about the person that like, you love the most, that, you, that annoys you the most. That person's your Nathan. <clears throat> most of us, you know, uh, well, thirdly, um, you got to keep in mind Nathan's out there. Um, that accusation, you are the man, that was not the intro. That was the conclusion, right? There was a whole story. There was a whole prayer 
and thought process and calling and living into that, building the courage, working through things, navigating, all that happened before you are the man. You are that man. You see that? We need a friend that is that intentional with his love, that wise with his love. Most of us, we automatically just assume we're both. But it's very important to know that every friendship is a spiritual journey, and if you don't see that, you're going to waste that relationship, either because you're impatient with each other or because you enable each other to get away with murder. You get what I'm saying here? Remember, David was an adulterer. He was a conspirer. He was a murderer. Why didn't Nathan, I mean, Nathan was called by God. Why didn't he just go at him? And the answer is because he loves him. He loves David. He doesn't want to just get David. He doesn't want to just arrest David or charge David. He doesn't want to just ruin David in a sense. He wants to heal David. He wants to save David. He wants to lead him to repentance. Nathan knows if you just condemn a person, it makes him almost impossible for that person to come to repentance. On the one hand, I guess it glorifies God in a sense to bust through the defenses, sack them with the truth about sin. But listen, it glorifies God more if they repent. It honors God more if they repent. And Nathan gets it. Seeing how bad things got for David. I mean, when you see your friend spiraling downward and you see the trail there's brokenness. It starts really, really small, and you see the seedlings, and then you start to see it start to kind of, it's like a grenade, it's, but it's maybe like a bomb, one of those kind of like uh, pulsating bombs that just starts to blow things up as it gets deeper and deeper. You see that, and you see, you're like, oh, this is awful. This is, and, and it angers you. You know why? Because you love that person. When you love somebody, when they do stuff and they're just imploding, it angers you because your anger is oftentimes proportional, sometimes disproportional to that love. You see that? But seeing how bad things got for David, Nathan knew that what was happening didn't happen, didn't begin or happen overnight. There was a web of lies and self-preservation and loneliness and deception and self-justification and defense mechanism. This is years, decades of, of this kind of building up in a person. And so Nathan knew that he needed to navigate David very carefully. He was super intentional, and he took the time that was needed. I mean, we all have that friend who is just knowledgeable of the Bible, is a leader, is just a natural leader, and they may be, I mean, in your own mind, they're just great people, good friends in that sense, but that's what makes them proud, and that's what makes them blind, and that's what makes them so difficult to correct. Walk with them. Love them. Nathan got into David's uh, narrative. He got into David's story, and we need to do that too. You got to get into their story. Fourthly, where a friend is often needed often goes under the radar because we just, they just don't want to listen. I mean, David's a king. You know what that means? That means that his work, the stewardship of his treasure, his wealth, uh, his treasury, that is, uh, how he spends his, his money, um, his decisions, how he's going to manage his relationships, politics, uh, the judgment that he makes on a daily basis, his family, they're all important. You are called to reflect God as king. The kingliness of God, that means your work, your stewardship of your finances, 
how you spend your money, the decisions that you make on a daily basis in your world, whether it's at work or at home, your relationships and how you manage them, how you navigate things in the church and your life and, and your community, the way you make judgments and your family, they're all important too. How wisely you take ownership over these areas of your life is what, is, is what really makes you a kingly person. Now, see, it's easy to go to friends when you're angry and when you're lonely and just kind of pop off. It's easy to do that. Why? Because when you're angry, when things just blow up in your life or when you're just super sad because things have just imploded, it easily leads to loneliness. And so we're reaching for people. We're just desperate for some sort of touch. But then you're just using your friends. See? What about before things implode? Have you let people into your life? What about things before things have fallen apart? Have you heard or listened? What about before certain decisions are made? I mean, you may be a better expert in certain areas. Friends, look, I'm a pastor. I talk to counselors, professional counselors, right, who have just messed up families. And their excuse and their reasoning is, I'm, I'm good. Why? Because I'm a professional counselor. It's an irony, but it's reality. It happens because that expertise and that knowledge oftentimes creates such pride and a lot of blind spots. So it's easy to go to people when things blow up, but what about before you make a decision? Even if you're an expert in an area, you're the only expert that you know in that area. Have you ever gone to people for the wisdom before you make those decisions? Are you the type of person to seek counsel and really listen to just godly people in your life? Or are you just going through the motions in the church because that just keeps you right with people? I mean, let's be honest here. Is it counsel you want or is it approval that you want? Because in reality, I would never submit my dating life or my marriage my wealth, how I spend that hard-earned money. You weren't there with me earning that money. My lifestyle choices. I would never submit these things, at least in the heart, to the church because the church ruins everything, we say. I saw that growing up, we say. Well, then you're just going to God for things. That prayer you just prayed today, you're just going to God for things. You're just going to God when you're lonely. You're just going to God on your terms you're just acting religious. You're just using God and using his church when you should be going to God for more of God, for his embrace, for his love, his intimacy, his wisdom, his power, his counsel. So if, you, if godly friends don't like something about you, I mean, they could be wrong. Their consciences and their vision, their judgments impaired too. We're all sinful creatures, but do you listen to them at least? Are you open to them? Or do you go to the next set of friends who may actually give you a better response, what you've actually been looking for? Are you good? Lastly, where a friend is needed is often under the radar because we're too afraid to speak into them. Sometimes we're just uncomfortable being put in a position to speak into somebody because in that moment, our relationship with those friends, their approval is more important than our relationship with God and our calling. You are saving their life in a sense. I mean, as you get older, I mean, I don't know how that looks when you're seven, but I tell you, if you let it go till you're 70, it's an oak tree. That sin is a redwood. 
You ever, <laughs> there are people in your life where you're like, that person's never going to listen to anything. I mean, they're just way older than you, and you just see them just very rigid. I mean, some of us have fathers that way, like that, and you say, that person's never going to change. They didn't just get like, they weren't born that way. And maybe in the heart. No one's ever gotten in. And maybe no one ever had the courage to speak in. Nobody had the equipment or the tools to speak into that person. No one had the sense of calling or the responsibility. But you, friends, I mean, you are here, right? That should be enough of a sense of calling. So rather than pointing to Jesus who cleanses us of our sin, who is our true king and we submit to our allegiance, our loyalty, our lives, are submissive to that king, we want to... You know, they're pouring out there, look, I messed up. And there's, what an opportunity to sit there and, and talk to somebody about their sinfulness because you're that person. And yet we just want to sanitize that sin. We just want to let them go free because well, you know why? A lot of it, I mean, maybe there's good intent. You just feel bad for them. And, and, and we, just, we just want them off the hook. You, you want to be off the hook for that matter. You don't want to say the hard things. And if anything, then you feel like a hero. Oh, you were there for me. When I was hurting, you saw me. You hear, hey, on one hand, it's good to walk with a person. But one of the symptoms of saying that you're walking with somebody when really you're just kind of avoiding confrontation is you develop this codependence with that person, this relationship that, that's really built around just mutual, mutual affirmation and a neglecting of sin, a dismissing of sin. A good friend is always mindful of the spiritual character of his friend. We're always thinking, I mean, where is God leading this person to whom, you know, this, where is God leading this person whom I love? And you're thoughtful about it. You're intentional about it. You engage them. You're carefully addressing those blind spots. The blind spots that are really killing that person. Nowadays, a lot of times, we replace the good phrases. Phrases like, your conscience is stirring. Do you see that? We, now, you know, instead of saying, hey, my conscience is stirring, we say, you're triggering me. We, we replace good words like accountability. And we say, you're oppressing me. But in reality, you're never going to make it through the valleys of life by rejecting Nathans when you really need Nathans. God sends friends whom you can't escape from. Somebody who know, you know loves you, but is not afraid to challenge you. They know they're called to you. They're doing what God has called them to do. And, and they love to do that. They want to do that. They know how to navigate your defenses. They're learning how to navigate your defenses. They're, they, you, know, you give them warrant. I'll talk filthy to you. Look, just talk filthy to me. Just say, you are that man. So they take the time to go to you and, and, um, and get into your story and, they, and they try to disarm you and convict you with godly wisdom, speaking into you, speaking into those sin patterns in your life. Sometimes it feels like a courtroom because we're not that good at it. It feels like a courtroom. You, you know, when you feel like you're on trial, it's because you know your spiritual DNA is telling you there's only one judge and this person's trying to be it, though. In some ways, there are questions and there's answers and it gets really tense, but there's love. There's love. They're putting themselves out there for this. They're risking a lot by doing that. Do you get that? Most of us, we're just not as careful as Nathan. 
and we're not as receptive as David. But that does not take away the need for Nathans, and it doesn't take away the need to be a Nathan. The power of rich, godly friendships. But lastly, this tells us about the power of grace. In chapter 12, verse 13, then David says to Nathan, I sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, David is a king. He is the judge. He should have been just. But he's corrupt, and in a sense, now he's on trial. He should have been condemned, but, but, he, but it, he's not sentenced. He's actually forgiven. How is that possible? I mean, Uriah is the one that had honor. He's the one that had love and, and courage. He lived the life that David should live. But then he paid the price. He died the death that David should have died. How did God do that? Why would God do that? Where is the justice here? I mean, we are powerless to sin, if not for the sheer grace of God. We would be condemned, but centuries later, in John chapter 19, Jesus Christ is standing with Pontius Pilate. He's been arrested. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate judge, and he is innocent, lived sinlessly. I mean, he is a greater Uriah. Uriah had the honor. He had the courage. He had the love. He had the faithfulness. He had the obedience. Jesus Christ was sinless, and he was ultimately loving and ultimately courageous and ultimately faithful and obeyed, uh, uh, ultimately uh, obedient. He was perfect, and yet now he's on trial. Jesus Christ should have been set free. I mean, he needed a Nathan to come and say, you are the men, let him go. And instead he was condemned. And like Uriah, he pays the price. Jesus Christ pays the ultimate price. He's the greater Uriah. He lived the life that we should live. And then he died the death. He paid the price that we should have paid. He died the death that we should have died. And yet for Jesus, no one comes and makes it right. No one comes and points to the Pharisees who are the religious people or Pontius Pilate who is the irreligious person to say, you are the men, you should all be condemned. No one comes to save uh, or redeem that. It was unjust. On the cross, we see the ultimate injustice. Jesus Christ is tried, he's accused, he's tried, he's charged. David was charged, but he wasn't condemned. But Jesus Christ, he's condemned. He gets the cross. This is Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, the sinless one. And yet he suffers, and he's tortured, and he's sent to die like Uriah, and he is abandoned by God. Uriah, his men withdrew from him in battle. And and he was forsaken. He was left for dead. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate battle is taking place on that cross, and God withdraws. In a forensic way, in a legal way, God withdraws from Jesus and he forsakes him. He leaves him for dead. For who? For our sins. Like David. Like Uriah for David. For our sins. For us. Why? Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. Jesus Christ was left for dead. Isaiah chapter 53 says he was cast out of the land of the living. He was cast out. He was rejected. 
So when Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin, Jesus Christ literally took away our sin so that when we repent, we're not earning salvation. When you confess, you're not earning forgiveness. You are accessing that forgiveness. If you believe that Jesus Christ was innocent and lived the life that you should live and died the death that you should die, then forgiveness is not based on your record. It's based on Jesus' record. It's not based on your merit or your works. It's based on Jesus' merit and his work on the cross. Your repentance doesn't earn you forgiveness in a way it accesses it. That is the power of the gospel. It's the power of God's grace through Jesus. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The gospel is a pardon for sin, but it also melts you invites you, powers you to repentance. Now you have the power to battle sin. You were joined with Christ so that when he died, you died. And when he rose again, you now have the power, the resurrection power in you to rise. And that means that in this world today, you have the power of the gospel in your life. The Holy Spirit resides in you. Jesus Christ defeated sin. His victory in union with him is your victory but also the power to return to the heart of God when, you, when, just life blows up, when life just blows up. If David's life, if David's life could blow up, anyone's life can blow up. But if David's life could be restored, surely our lives can be restored. And you would have the courage then to confront those seeds. You may see it as a seed. Talk to your friends. The gospel gives us the wisdom and the power and the humility to listen to our Nathans. I mean, David listened to his Nathan. Also the wisdom and the power and the love to be great Nathans because we have the ultimate Nathan who came not to bring judgment on his people but to bear judgment, to bear the cross for his people. And when you see Jesus Christ doing that for you, that's the beginning of getting the gospel. If you get that, then it's the beginning of really getting the Nathans then in your life the blindness has finally started to lift. Healing starts to take place. You start to become whole and human the way you were created again by God. You get that? We're going to respond in two ways today. We're going to respond with the, the bread and the wine, and then we're going to respond in song and prayer. Let's pray together.